Hello, and welcome to Surveyor Says, the podcast from the National Society of Professional Surveyors. Our latest edition in our Point of Order series captured a conversation with Executive Director Kurt Sumner, NSPS lobbyist John J.B. Byrd, and our legislative consultant John Palatiello. They discuss everything from politics in Washington, D.C. in the age of the COVID-19 pandemic to the issues still in front of the surveying profession, including 3DEP funding and Legato, formerly known as Light Squared. A very interesting and informative exchange. So let's go on with this point of order here on Surveyor Says. Good morning, everyone. Or I'm saying good morning. You may not be listening to this in the morning, but we're recording it in the morning. Nonetheless, this is another episode of Surveyor Says. We thought it would be a good idea to have a conversation with John Palatiello and uh, John J.B. Byrd regarding what's going on in in our our political world or our uh, administrative world, whatever you want to call it, uh, here in the Washington, D.C. area, as well as to cover some of the issues that we are continually looking at and uh, that are affecting the profession. A lot of our listeners will know that we held a board meeting last week. Uh, remotely through this same kind of platform, NSPS board. So uh, John and JB are going to talk about some of the issues that we brought up there and then perhaps a couple of others that maybe we didn't cover there that would be good to give you as our listeners um, an update on. So welcome, John, and welcome, JB. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Kurt. Good to be with you. Thanks, Kurt. So, JB, um, as I'm Looking at your image here, we're looking at each other during this broadcast. I'm pretty sure that what's in the background is not the Capitol in Washington, D.C. Uh, so tell our audience a little bit about what what's the life of a, a D.C. everyday person during this situation. Right. Well, thanks again, Kurt, to be on the uh, the podcast. Um, yeah, the, the world's turned upside down for a lobbyist like myself who's used to driving into D.C. And, 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 and wearing some shoe polish every day, wearing a business suit. Those, those are the days of the past, unfortunately. I, I think I've come up with a personal record now of six weeks without shaking anyone's hand. <laughs> so uh, that'll just kind of tell you how it's not as much retail anymore. It's much more digital. Uh, when it comes to interacting with folks, uh, typically it's by person-to-person calls or attending conference calls or um, participating on webinars. That's the way I access uh, people on and off the hill now. And it's a much more sedentary uh, lifestyle when it comes to uh, interacting with people. But fortunately, the technology allows for it, and that still provides us access to the folks on Capitol Hill. Interesting enough, there are very few staffers that remain on Capitol Hill. Uh, most of them are also uh, telecommuting and working uh, using their cell phones. And I think there's a definitely a personal uh, angle to this is that they're, they're, they're kind of caged up just like the rest of us. And they're in some ways looking for interaction. And so in some ways it's actually allowed me to to interact with folks, um, not necessarily, number one, using cell phones. I get their cell numbers now, and they're very open about that. But 
the interaction is actually shorter because uh, they're just more willing to, to listen. They have less background noise. They can concentrate better. And uh, that means that you don't have to spend as much time with them, and they actually prefer that. You can get hey, your Kirk, point across. Yeah. This is John. Let me just add that uh, the same is true. Uh, people don't realize this, but the same is true for the federal agencies. They're all telecommuting as well. I, I happen to have a, a good professional and personal uh, relationship with the Deputy Secretary of Labor. And uh, we were chatting on Sunday, uh, talking about Davis-Bacon and AAM 212. Um, and he was indicating to me that other than himself and the secretary, no one else in the Department of Labor basically is, is going in the office. Uh, another friend of mine is an assistant secretary of interior, and he's working from home. So even at that level, uh, it's a work from home environment. And I would just underscore what JB said. It, it dawned on me the other day that we're saving a lot of money on business cards because I haven't, JB hasn't shaken a hand. I haven't given a business card to, to anyone in six or seven weeks either. So it's a, it's a whole new world. Let me say though, that Congress is coming back next week and JB wanna, may wanna comment on this as well. Both the House and Senate are coming back next week, the first week in May. And they have not yet uh, unveiled to everyone how they're gonna operate. Um, there was a vote in the House the other day on the uh, replenishment of funds for the small business PPP program. And what they did is they, instead of a 15 minute roll call vote in the House, which is the norm, it was about a three hour roll call vote and they staggered folks coming into the House chamber alphabetically. So if your last name started with ABC, you went, the first 15 minutes and then DEF and so on. And just like the supermarkets are creating one-way aisles, they had one way into the house chamber and one way out. So that's how they were accomplishing the social distancing. But the question now is when Congress comes back, how do they hold hearings? Um, they, the, nobody from the executive branch from the Trump administration has appeared as a witness before a congressional committee in over six weeks now. Um, how do you handle visitors? How do you handle staff? Uh, many of our members have been to Capitol Hill on our lobby day, and you know how cramped congressional offices are. It's 12 to 15 people in about what? Maybe a thousand square feet? Well, you can't be six feet apart, do the math. <laughs> um, so how do you do staff? Well. What does JB do? What kind of access is he going to have as a lobbyist going to Capitol Hill? These are all unanswered questions right now for when, when Congress gets back to work. Yeah, for John's exactly right. There's, there's one example of this. Uh, we know about the congressional staff now. When it comes to submitting amendments on behalf of their bosses, they, cannot, they can no longer turn in an amendment in person. It has to be all digital. So that's going to be, uh, they just want to, clamp down on foot traffic and exposure for members of Congress. So the fewer staff that have to navigate the halls of Congress, the better off it is from the legislator's point of view. So the committees are, st are starting to really just basically say, we need to revert back to just having members of Congress do a lot of the in-person uh, legislating. 
and, and rely on the staffers to field the calls, the emails back in the office, and then communicate that directly instead of being in there in person to staff their bosses. They have to do it all digitally now. One of the things I'm taking from your conversation, and particularly something that John said, is um, it's a, a painful thing for all of us whose last name is near the end of the alphabet. <laughs> uh, our entire lives, we've been put at the end of the line. We don't get to talk till everybody else is done. So um, I guess I'd hope that after all these decades, maybe there'd been some reversal of that, but obviously that's not true. <laughs> So, well, thanks for that update. I I think our, our listeners, I know I've been curious about it. Uh, and, you know, we're right here close by and we hear a lot of news that maybe other folks don't hear uh, even on our local channels. But uh, it's just kind of hard to grasp how everything's working. And um, but it sounds as though it's I won't say it's business as usual, but it's open um, and and dialogue is still going on, even though it may not be directly with the legislators which, by the way, is, doesn't happen all the time anyway, right? So, Well, you know, Kurt, uh, I'm surprised the late-night comedians have not – of course, they're not – they're on very uh, Spartan broadcast these days anyway. But, you know, this, this is just ripe for a lot of jokes. You know, Congress has been gone for, for several weeks, which means they're not essential. <laughs> uh, and the other is that when when Speaker Nancy Pelosi adjourned the House, she people complained as there were some, particularly Republicans, who said, "Well, you know, we ought to be there working." And she said, "Well, don't worry, I could call the Congress back in session if there's an emergency." <laughs> <laughs> if there happened to be one. <laughs> if there happened to be one. <laughs> well, thank you both for sharing uh, your comments about life on the hill or life here in the dc area or in in our arena uh in general because i know our listeners are i don't know if they're uh waiting with bated breath or whatever but it is of interest i think just to f see how how things work and and that they do continue to operate even though a little bit differently so with that i know jb there's a number of things we've been looking at for some time uh, maybe you and John could talk a little bit about some of the, I won't say the most pressing one, but some of the prominent ones that we're either beginning to work on or continuing to work on. Sure. Uh, so I, I think uh, we, number one, there are plenty of issues uh, that are still in play for the professional surveyor to be aware of on Capitol Hill. And uh, in many cases, uh, while there may not be um, uh, movement on bills per se because of the legislative business uh, moving on House or Senate floors, there's a lot of activity behind the scenes taking place. Uh, one of the examples uh, of an issue that uh, NSPS has taken a leading role in promoting is the 3D elevation program uh, run by USGS. And the, we're basically now in the regular appropriation season, if that's possible, and we are part of this. And uh, going back, I believe, to February, uh, NSBS hosted a briefing with, uh, sponsored, well, NSBS sponsored the briefing. It was hosted by the House Manufacturing Caucus uh, to connect the dots between the critical minerals, critical materials, uh, and the importance of using LIDAR and 3DAP 
to locate these and what that means to the supply chain for American jobs and the American economy. So the House Manufacturing Caucus hosted a briefing and SPS sponsored it. Kurt, you were there. Uh, John Pelletiello was one of the panelists. And we had uh, the uh, lead geologist for the state of Colorado, as well as two federal agency officials uh, connected to critical materials, critical uh, minerals, and the USGS 3 dot program. So I think exposure for NSPS on Capitol Hill was maximized in person. There were a lot of congressional staff that attended. Uh, it was, I think, very well received. It was the largest audience that, that NSPS and 3DEP has had on probably a single issue at any one point um, for that, that, that event. And so it helped promote 3DEP. There have been a couple other developments since then. JB, before you get into that, let me just add a finer point because you do have some good news to report on some of this behind the scenes lobbying that's going on. But, but Kurt, I think it's important for NSPS members to understand that President Trump issued an executive order about two years ago now on uh, what they call uh, Earth MRI, and it is um, our mineral resource initiative. Everything from the device that you are using to listen to this podcast, um, to your automobile, to surveying instruments, to satellites, all require critical minerals that go into the manufacturing of all of those things. Many of those, in fact, most of those critical minerals we do not mine here in the United States. We are dependent on foreign sources. And for many of the most critical minerals, guess upon whom we are most dependent? You know the answer. China. China. Yep. And so um, tying the importance of 3DEP and elevation data through LIDAR to the identification, the geology, and the mining of those minerals and materials is absolutely critical to our national security and our economic security. And boy, it is coming home to roost, and we are, uh, we are really recognizing uh, the importance of that. So I think this is going to be a big issue when Congress comes back. Uh, you hear a lot of our elected officials, a lot of politicians talking about this on television, about our reliance, not just on the manufacturing itself, but also on the mining of materials that go into manufacturing. And we've got to start beefing up our supply chain from domestic sources here in the United States. That's going to create a lot of work for surveyors. Right. One, I know. So I, think, I was just going to say, John. Uh, I'd made a note, actually, when JB was talking on that very thing that you just mentioned. I think looking at those charts that they had up about where the minerals come from that we utilize, right. boy, was that a, a, a shock and an eye-opener to me. And it, it shouldn't have been, I mean, it, but it was, just to look at how dependent we are on a lot of different countries, as you said, specifically China, but for a variety of minerals, just how dependent the U.S. is. And I guess that's just indicative of how we've become dependent on foreign sources for almost everything, it seems. 
one of the TV shows I've always been a big fan of is 60 Minutes, and they did quite a piece a while ago on this issue, on critical minerals and our dependence on foreign sources. And I'm sure you can go to their archive or Google and, and or, or uh, YouTube and find it, but, and I commend it to everyone's attention because it is eye-opening and it's actually frightening that uh, we are so dependent on foreign sources, unreliable sources, and in some cases, hostile sources to our uh, national and economic security. So but that's the bad news. The good news is, uh, again, JB working his phones, working his email, working his sources. JB, you have a couple of developments on some things that have uh, uh, transpired in the last couple of weeks in support of 3DEP and trying to get that program uh, appropriated at the highest funding level as possible. I think it'd be worth you going over some of your accomplishments and, and things that have happened in the last couple of weeks. Sure, so uh, building off of uh, John Pelletiello's testimony in front of the Interior Subcommittee on the House Appropriations Committee back in February, I think it's February 6th, a couple of developments that John is uh, uh, mentioned here. Number one is we've had uh, significant outreach by members of Congress and senators contacting the Appropriations Committee, echoing what John testified for, and which was robust funding for 3DAP. Uh, what they, what USGS wants per year is $146 million a year, and we were able to get 13 U.S. senators to make that ask for robust funding for 3DAP to the Senate Appropriations Committee. That's a significant bipartisan effort to get 13 senators to co-sign a letter asking for that. And on the House side, we were and successful. Let me just inject, to get 13 senators from both parties to agree on anything is monumental. So great job there. Right, and then uh, over on the House side, uh, 36 House members in a bipartisan manner also submitted their signature for a similar letter. So what we're able to do is to leverage John's uh, testimony from February and then have 13 bipartisan senators and 36 bipartisan House members ask for the same of the appropriators. And then uh, most recently, as of last week, NSPS was one of 52 organizations to petition to co-sign a letter to the Appropriations Committee asking for the $146 million a year for USGS 3DEP. So uh, we basically had four, bite at, four bites at the apple and to, to get the attention of the appropriators for increased funding and support for 3DEP. So those are, I think that's, that's where we were able to leverage, again, the NSPS leadership in sponsoring a breakfast on Capitol Hill to get access to uh, congressional staff and key key decision makers and key staffers, and then translate that to uh, uh, continued support for senators from House members, and then ultimately to get a lot of. Quite frankly, when you move away from the typical geospatial uh, professionals, you have a lot of the end users of the data, and that's where the 52 organizations that also see value to their own constituencies about the importance of elevation data to the national economy, to other efforts that uh, their respective trade association or professional society find value in. 
So the voice of 3DEP continues to, to grow, increase on and off the hill. I don't. I know that we have some topics we want to talk about going forward, but could you guys spend a couple of minutes talking about uh, perspective a little bit on the whole um, Legato thing? Um, just because of what's happened in the last week or so, I know that that's going to be of interest to our audience, and it's hard to determine where all this is going. I mean from my perspective on the things that we've talked about amongst ourselves and have 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 actually uh, been in support of it's it seems as though this might be a big blow to us because the way it's come down it's just really hard to tell i mean you read all the different things but all the people that we've sort of put our trust in have been in opposition to this and now you're seeing all kinds of things coming out from different places on how great it might be or it's not going to be have a negative impact when all the information we seem to have been able to get our hands on said that, that it would be. So, so I, let me put the issue let me put the issue in a little perspective, Kurt. So okay. what we're talking about is a company called Legato. Used to be Light Squared. And I think a lot of our members will remember the, the, the former name rather than the, the latter name. Um, so Light Squared went through a reorganization, uh, but continued to petition the Federal Communications Commission for a spectrum allocation for a satellite-based broadband network. The problem with their application is where on the communications spectrum they proposed to operate, there were a number of engineering studies that showed it would create interference with the GPS signals. Um, you have to hand it to them. They were tenacious. They didn't give up. They they kept coming back and coming back. And they finally, I guess, to the satisfaction of the Federal Communications Commission, submitted engineering studies that showed that interference would not occur. Um, the Secretary of Defense was opposed to their application. There were other cabinet secretaries that were opposed. Quite frankly, there was division within the administration. Um, some cabinet officers were against it, some came down in support of it. But the Federal Communications Commission um, earlier this month did approve the application. Now, they approved it with conditions, and the conditions were that Legato must continue to demonstrate that they will not interfere with GPS. And uh, if there is uh, instance of interference, then their um, spectrum allocation and their permit to operate by the FCC can be revoked. So we're in a, a bit of a wait and see attitude, uh, number one. Number two, I think the jury is still out as to whether there may be uh, a lobbying campaign to maybe put a writer on the FCC's appropriations. Um, I don't know if there will be litigation because there are some uh, consent decrees and some settlement agreements between some uh, companies that um, uh, utilize GPS on one hand and Legato on the other hand. So a lot of this is still to be determined. But right now, they are approved, but their approval is conditioned upon their system 
not providing any interference with the signals used in GPS. So do you think, um, I've seen some information that's come across through email or, or through some of the, you know, the GP, uh, GPSIA guys uh, provide a lot of information that comes out that you know, JB works with them. Um, that's, the, that's the GPS Innovation Alliance of which NSPS is a member. Correct. And and so it seems as though in some of that communication there are people who are saying these re these uh, restrictions or these proofs that have to come up that there should be just forgotten. Uh, that kind of scared me a little bit when I read that. Maybe I misinterpreted it, but it seemed as though there were some people pushing to just relax those those restrictions. I don't think so. I, I think there's a pretty strong uh, condition on the approval. And I mean, clearly, if the Secretary of Defense comes to the FCC and says they're interfering, they are messing around with our ability to use GPS, uh, it's going to be hard for the FCC to tell the Secretary of Defense to go away. Um, so if that interference occurs, I think there will be consequences. So we're just going to have to wait and see at this point. But um, JB, you may want to comment about potential legislation or, or what next steps may be. But, but right now, I think it's pretty much let's wait and see. And um, we have to, I guess, have some faith in the fact that these conditions will be the safeguard that we need. Yeah, I just, I just have one, yeah. quick, uh, one other quick question. Do we have any idea how much um, investment or how much uh, cost is going to be incurred in in setting up this system and getting it running before those answers to what you just talked about are available? And I ask that question because let's say they spend tons and tons of money and then they'll, they'll have the argument, well, we spent all this money and we've and now you're telling us to back off. I I just don't have a good feel for that. Well, I, I think my experience is national defense always trumps economics. And no matter how much money this company may invest in deploying their system, if it proves that they create a harm to the ability of the Department of Defense to operate global positioning system, that is going to ultimately win the day. Now, forget the impact on surveying right. or aviation or precision agriculture, national defense is going to carry the day. I, I Maybe I'm naive, but I feel pretty confident that um, that will be the Achilles heel for Legato if indeed they create interference. Yeah, I, and I guess the, the, the last point I had was, and you probably can't answer this either, but I'm just wondering what the, what's the potential that the harm could come to users like surveyors or other geospatial folks, but not be a harm to the Department of Defense. Is that that? I guess I don't know that there's a way to answer that question. But no, I think you need a good electrical engineer to answer that question, and and, yeah. and I'm not one. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's our it's our understanding that this is several years away from being implemented. It just there's not the physical infrastructure to to yet to uh, to follow through. So there will be some some opportunity to maybe address a lot of these answers before they get up and running. Uh, but NSBS has been tracking this very closely on three different 
layers of coalitions. Uh, John has already mentioned the uh, GPS Innovation Alliance that we're an affiliate member of. And then the two other coalitions that you, that NSPS is a part of, uh, one is called the USGS Coalition. And a lot of the folks in the research and academic community that are also a part of that coalition are really uh, scared about the loss of GPS or any kind of interference with, with GPS and that what that means for scientific data based on uh, the satellites that are orbiting uh, and what impact that might might have for the scientific community. So we're keeping close eyes on that. And then uh, John Warren is the, uh, the, the current chairman of the Coalition of Geospatial Organizations, COGO. And there's uh, increased level of interest in COGO members about the negative uh, uh, negative potential of, of uh, the impact on GPS as well. So I, I think uh, you know NSBS has has been on this for quite some time, as John and Kurt mentioned, going back to the light squared days, and we continue to be on top of this now with Legato. Uh, but we're positioned to again be a part of um, any kind of uh, continued outreach or legislative opportunity to to impact this down the road. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate spending a little bit of time on that. I know that. That's a big issue that's of interest to our listeners, so I uh, want to be sure that we cover that. So we can. You know, the thing. That, Go ahead, John. Uh, Kurt, if I may, the, the the you raise a very good point, um, but I think what JB has been saying is working in coalitions with other organizations. NSPS is very much plugged into the entire process and the entire issue of legato. So. We will continue to uh, work with other organizations that share our concern. We will always have access to the latest information, and we will be able to respond and influence if that's needed. So the membership of NSPS can rest assured that we are engaged, we are involved, and we will um, we will represent continue to represent the interests of surveyors as the need arises if uh, this system and this application should prove to uh, have a harm on GPS. Great. Thanks, John. JB, uh, we can kind of get back to the list we started with, I suppose, and uh, maybe cover a couple, three more issues. We always try to keep these things around 30 minutes or so. Uh, and we may need to do an, another session, which is not a bad idea. We need to keep people informed, and this is a pretty simple way to do it. So um, what do you think are our most important things to talk about over the next few minutes? Well, uh, we could diversify a little bit, but before we do that, let's let's touch on uh, continue the discussion on broadband. And one of the big uh, uh, action items that the FCC and USDA, the Secretary of Agriculture, have been uh, working on is rural broadband deployment. And uh, going back to the Farm Bill and 20 vision to that bill uh, to add geospatial expertise to a task force that would be authorized in the Farm Bill. And that, that task force was to take a look at extending uh, broadband deployment and coverage, and where is the actual infrastructure to do so in rural locations, and how best to connect uh, the farming community 
to best elevate precision agriculture. And as a result of the Farm Bill being enacted, that task force was authorized and we were able to uh, leverage uh, the connections uh, that we have in Congress to get Brent Berth appointed to, a, to the mapping working group. And what this task force and what the working group ends up being is another version of an advisory committee to federal agencies, just like uh, Jim Nadeau is a part of the uh, TMAC, which advises FEMA on flood mapping. This is a advisory committee and working group to advise the FCC and to advise USDA on how best to get rural broadband coverage and capability to the, to the farmers and to the agricultural community. And Brent so, is a surveyor and an NSPS member from Pennsylvania who also has some experience with broadband and uh, his surveying practice is very much tied to the communications industry. Yeah, as, as is Jim's with uh, flood issues, right? Right, and um, uh, Gary Thompson representing NSPS on the um, uh, NGAC and uh, Qasem Abdullah on the uh, Hydrographic Services Review Panel. So we have uh, been quite successful in getting NSPS members appointed to a lot of these government uh, panels and advisory committees. So, um... So Brent's, Brent's hard at work with that, um, and that does touch on infrastructure a good bit um, as far as, uh, you know, where to put the telecom towers, where to dig and put the conduit underground. So Brent's keeping on top of that. Uh, maybe we can then uh, move, move back over to uh, the connection to FEMA and uh, flood mapping and, and briefly cover that. Uh, so what so what's been going on in Congress is that uh, the the funding the authorization for the National Flood Insurance Program will expire at the end of September of this year, and there are numerous proposals that, for one one reason or another, have just not uh, gotten anywhere close to the finish line for authorization. The House has a version of a bill that uh, NSPS was able to to get significant revisions to flood mapping uh, in, included last year. Unfortunately, that's kind of uh, slowed down a bit. The Senate has a bill, but it hasn't gone anywhere. So NSPS will continue to be to keep on top of those bills, but action would be needed before September 30th to extend that program. In the meantime, uh, a committee that typically does not uh, have oversight on the issue decided to get involved and that was the house science uh, space and, and, and technology um, committee in the house they decided to take a look at the technology connected to the NFIP program run by FEMA and in doing so uh, they they had uh, they were able to invite uh, an NSPS member from Kansas to come in and testify Ryan Branford and he represented uh, the survey and mapping and geospatial community and focused on the technology involved uh, and explained the kind of the history behind surveyors, the professional surveying point of view, and then some of the technology involved. Uh, so that was very helpful uh, to, to have all sorts of uh, angles to, to the NFIP covered. 
So a lot of what the TMAC is doing, a lot of the technology, a lot of the LIDAR, uh, Ryan was able to, to cover in his testimony. So another example of where Congress has sought and heard from the professional surveyors and Maybe, what, what it means. No, go ahead, JB. I, I, I was just going to say um, maybe a good way to, to top this one off. We've been talking about NSPS activity and involvement through the whole uh, session today, which is great because our, our members really need to hear about that directly from you guys. So I, I appreciate you doing that. Uh, maybe one other thing we ought to touch on is this uh, a little more recent thing we've gotten involved in with uh, with USGS on the subsidence issue um, and and need more more help from our members in helping identify areas that might be covered by this this activity and so I don't know John maybe that'd be one you want to pick up on and, and talk about what our conversations have have been so far and one one thing I will throw out at the beginning is our the guy who just went off being immediate past president, Kim Levitt, has been part of that. And he brought up a really good example that had that of subsidence, which was a big deal in Idaho where he lives. So that just points out that it happens everywhere. So, John, maybe you could talk a little bit about how that came about and what our our uh, our participation is about. Uh, sure, Kurt. Yes, this is another uh, example of we're on the front end of something that I think ultimately is uh, technically going to benefit surveyors and from a business standpoint, create much more of a demand for surveyors. And that is that there is a phenomenon of subsidence occurring all over the world and uh, all across the United States and in very different parts of the United States. Uh, one is the phenomena of coastal subsidence. There, um, it was interesting. The Washington Post Sunday Magazine had a story a week ago. It was on Sunday, April 19th. And it, it, the title of it was Climate Change Turns the Tide on Waterfront Living. And it was a story of folks that live in a um, shoreline community, a waterfront community on the Chesapeake Bay in Norfolk, Virginia. And the entire article was about the fact that sea level rise is uh, is creating uh, an increased frequency of flooding. And this gets into the whole problem we have with our flood insurance program of benefits get paid out on a repetitive basis to the same homeowner whose home is in a, a vulnerable uh, flood prone area. Well, the interesting thing about this article is there was one word that did not appear in the entire article, subsidence. The USGS has done a study that, uh, that they did in the Hampton Roads area of Virginia, southeastern coastal Virginia, in which the USGS scientists said that 50% of the phenomena was subsidence, not sea level rise. It's not so much that the sea level is rising, it's that the land is sinking. Now, some of this is geologic. Some of it is caused by the extraction of water from uh, groundwater systems. Um, but there are certain parts of the United States where, uh, where coastal subsidence is considerable. And if you're not taking that into account, then that's not good science. You're not looking at all of the factors. Um, 
So the USGS is working with uh, NASA in particular, uh, National Geodetic Survey of NOAA is involved, the Corps of Engineers is involved, but uh, there is the development of a national land leveling program uh, where there is a NASA satellite that is collecting data that is measuring changes in land level. Uh, they are hoping to develop a program to uh, process and apply that data from the NASA satellite, and this is from the uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California, NASA lab, and come up with a national map at a very, very small scale. But it will identify those areas of the country that are most prone to and most experiencing subsidence. Uh, there is a PowerPoint presentation that was presented, uh, Kurt, to you and I and JB and a few other NSPS members that were on by, by webinar and also at a meeting at USGS. This was back at the end of last year. And they pointed out some examples. For example, in the, um, in the Central Valley of California, they show an example of where the extraction of water from aquifers has resulted in like a 30-foot drop in the land level. And that's not anywhere near the coast. That's inland California. You mentioned Kim Levitt. Kim has come up with an example of a project that he worked on in Idaho, not exactly a coastal state, at least not yet, um, where, <laughs> where they experienced and the surveyors were able to document and measure significant subsidence. So what this will do, this program will create a national map at a very small scale to identify the general areas of the country where there is known subsidence. And then obviously on a project by project basis and on a much lower local basis, that will create a demand for much larger scale, much more uh, highly accurate, much more precise measurement which a local surveyor will perform uh, to factor that subsidence into virtually any kind of infrastructure project, any kind of construction project, because as the engineer is doing design, the engineer will have to factor in the phenomena of subsidence um, in that engineering analysis. So um, look for more of this to come. We will be keeping the members involved. We will be keeping NSPS involved, uh, keeping the members informed, keeping NSPS involved. And um, I think, uh, for example, the Maryland surveyors are going to have USGS do a presentation uh, by webinar during the month of May. And I think this will be an opportunity for more of our uh, members and particularly our state organizations to interact with USGS and, and help inform our members uh, uh, more specifically about the emergence of this program and more about the phenomena of subsidence. Yeah, and like in the, ac the action ahead. item that we, yeah, sorry, Kurt, the action item we need for those of you listening to this is that if you have an example, we, we need to uh, come up with a few more use cases beyond what Kim has found in Idaho. So if you are aware of a local project, infrastructure related or not, 
where there's an, a, uh, an issue of subsidence and what, what it's done, what, how it's impacted that project, please let us know, like right away, we need this information ASAP. We are working with different coalitions. USGS has asked us for additional examples, um, but we do need to come up with a few more of those. So if you are aware, please please contact Kurt. Uh, or, or uh, yeah, I guess that's probably what we need to do, Kurt, is to have you as the, um, the have, you, have you, re have yep. you yeah, point of contact for examples. Right. So any example that an NSPS member has of where subsidence has been a, a phenomena in a project that you've worked on, which demonstrates the need for such data and uh, and for the science of the phenomena to be considered, um, send those examples to, to Kurt and uh, it'll help us to make the case for why uh, this program should be going forward. Right. Well, we are... Um around 30 minutes or so with, with this one and uh, maybe a little longer than some of the ones, but I thought it was important for us to have this sort of broad discussion about a number of things that are going on and get information out in, in front of our, uh, our membership for one reason, to let them know we're actually still working and still doing things, but also that there's so many things where our members are, are critical to our efforts. And, and you guys have pointed out today just how critical that is and how important it is and how helpful it is when our members are available to help with testimony or present cases or just provide information uh, for our efforts. So, Kurt, before we, before we wrap up, you, you raise an excellent point, and I, I want to close with this if, if I can, because we opened with talking about what's life like in Washington and in the public policy arena and government relations as we're dealing with working from home and social distancing and all of the uh, activities uh, related to the coronavirus. But you made, you just talked about how critical surveyors are. And I just wanna point out that NSPS has been in a leadership uh, in working with our state affiliates uh, and in turn working with governors because in most states, the, the general rule is that surveyors have been defined as essential and critical, and most surveyors are still working in large measure, measure because of the initiative of NSPS. We've also been working with the Department of Homeland Security to make sure that their guidance on what is considered uh, the critical infrastructure workforce of the nation, that's essential. Uh, that a lot of things related to surveying are in that document as a result of uh, NSPS, again, working in coalition with others. So it's, it's great that most surveyors are still working and it is a demonstration of how critical and essential surveyors are to the economy and the, and the quality of life in our country. Yeah, thanks for that, John. That, that's certainly an important point. Well, thank you both for joining me today. Um, and we'll we'll be having more conversations, and maybe we'll want to do another one of these not too too far out, JB, to make sure we keep everybody informed on all the other things that are going on. Uh, so it's been great talking to you guys today, and actually seeing faces again instead of just looking at my computer screen or whatever uh, during this this difficult time. But hopefully, uh, sometime soon, we'll be getting back to 
some semblance of normality and and moving ahead. So, but we will keep our our listeners and our members informed, and this is a good way to do it. So, thank you both for joining me today. Thank you, Kurt. Stay safe, and hope all of the members of NSPS will stay safe. Thank, thank you, Kurt. Will do. Take care. You've been listening to Point of Order here on the Surveyor Says podcast. We would like to thank our lobbyist, John J.B. Bird, and legislative consultant, John Palatiello, for keeping NSPS in front of these items, even during this historical period and lots of uncertainty ahead. Keep up to date with these issues and more within our weekly email newsletter, News and Views. More Table A Talk with Kurt Sumner and Gary Kent are being scheduled, so send your questions for Gary to info at nsps.us.com and put Table A Talk in the subject line. Upcoming episodes include discussions with professionals nationwide on how surveying has continued during the pandemic, as well as a new series on insurance for the surveyor to limit liability. So remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, as well as our podcast host, Podbean. And watch our website, nsps.us.com, for information on future episodes. And remember, it's a great day to be a surveyor.